Chris O'Connor here. Join our fabulous curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now, let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Ah, yes, B-sides. In this age of digital distribution and online music streaming, the notion of B-sides to singles is becoming increasingly irrelevant. Yet in terms of physical media, the idea of B-sides is one of the most endearing and geek-centric concepts among, well, music geeks, (laughs) particularly in rock music. The idea is this, a band slash artist records and releases an album. From that album, they choose a song to be the single, or the the A-side, to promote the album and get played on commercial radio. In physical media, this single would come in the form of a vinyl record, a cassette, or a CD. The B-side would be the song you can hear on the flip side of the physical media. This song could be an outtake from the band's slash artist's album sessions, or it could be an album track, i.e. another song from the album. Some bands slash artists, however, took great care with their B-sides, taking them as an opportunity to thank their fans for being loyal and buying a song that they were going to buy a second time whenever the album would come out. This is especially a proud tradition in Great Britain, with bands throughout the years such as The Beatles, The Kinks, The Who, Led Zeppelin, The Jam, The Clash, Joy Division, Oasis, and Radiohead putting out some of their greatest songs as B-sides. It wasn't just the British, though, as plenty of U.S. bands slash artists would reward fans buying singles by making B-sides out of stellar outtakes or covers. R.E.M., Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Pavement, and Smashing Pumpkins, to name just a few. On this episode, we're going to count down numbers 50 through 1, our picks for the greatest B-sides the genre of rock has ever given us. Our only qualifier is that the B-sides cannot be album tracks. So, welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report as we bring you Rock's Greatest so, Art, let's get right to it. Are you ready yeah. to enter the parallel universe? Yes. Basically, the parallel universe, as our longtime listeners know, uh, it is our new album review segment in a parallel universe where rock music, uh, it, where rock music is still a big part of the pop cultural zeitgeist. These albums and artists would be huge. Instead, yeah. they are. In, in our yeah. real universe, <laughs> and, and 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 granted, the parallel universe is not so bad. That it's not so uh, uh, flourishing that Grand Funk Railroad is on the Billboard instead of Taylor Swift. Uh, <laughs> it's not quite that bad, but uh, yeah, yeah uh, the stadiums, the billboards, Rolling Stone, the radio—it's all dedicated to the rock and the rock and roll <laughs> and to great music and the and the good hip hop and the good EDM. Yes, and the good hip hop and the good EDM. Uh, 
Drake, Drake is bottom of the list in uh, in the parallel universe for sure. So uh, with that said, we do newish, new and newish records. Uh, Arturo, who are you covering this week or in this episode for the parallel universe? Yes, I'm doing the album that technically came out last year. We're still in January yep. by uh, Sufjan Stevens. It's called Javelin. Now, I'm not generally a fan of Sufjan Stevens, who's been giving us his brand of indie folk and experimental pop for over 20 years now. He does have his moments, though. Back in 2015, he pared his indulgences down and produced the album Carrie and Lowell, a stripped-down affair with very autobiographical lyrics relating to his family and probably the most open he's ever been about his personal life. His new album, Javelin, doesn't quite reach the terrific heights of that former album, but there is quite a bit to like here. And uh, in a parallel universe where rock music was still a thing, this album would get some airplay. <laughs> you can describe the Stevens album as intricately arranged progressive folk. But what sells it, though, are some of the prettiest melodies and affecting lyrics Stevens has produced to date. The stark, confessional nature of Will Anybody Ever Love Me is one of the standouts, as is the sprawling, epic shit talk. The mm -hmm. album ends with a pleasant surprise, a surprisingly lovely cover of Neil Young's There's a World. It isn't a masterpiece, as there are some duff tracks in the album's first half, but it's easily one of Stevens' best albums. A solid three-and-a-half-star album. Chris? Yeah, I would agree. Solid three and a half uh, star record. Very, uh, really pretty record. Uh, a lot of yeah. a lot of pretty uh, production. A lot of pretty songs. And I'm a huge fan of the title title track, uh, mm. which is Javelin, and in parentheses to have and to hold. Uh, it's right. the two minute song, but it's remarkably poignant yeah. uh, in its uh, in its visions of loss and of well, not 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 just that. It it goes from revenge fantasy to suicidal lament. Right. Uh, and I mean, it's just really evocative and just really, really, it's just a, a beautiful and tragic, uh, type of song. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah, you're right. That there's a world cover, uh, that comes out of nowhere, but it's really, really good. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I think you, you kind of mentioned it, that it, the album takes a little while to get going, but yeah. by like song five, song six, it actually becomes really, really strong. Uh, yeah. And and it is kind of shocking to me that, that that we're talking about Sufjan Stevens in in 2024. Uh, <laughs> only in the sense, well, one, he's been around forever, but two, uh, you know, Illinois is one of those records, and that was his record. What was it, 2007, that he came out with? That? I think it's 2005. Yeah, somewhere in there. I mean, it all it all blends together. I wasn't I wasn't big into music at the. I had kind of burned out, so the 2005 to 2008 is all a big blur to me. But uh, I always thought Illinois was an incredibly overrated record. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, didn't didn't deserve. I mean, there was almost like a worship at the altar to it. I mean, it it, it made the Shins uh, uh, worship altar uh, seem downright quaint uh, <laughs> yeah. in regards. You remember O Inverted World had its cult. Uh, right. But so given that that record to me is so overrated, I tend to, you know, I've been talking a lot about it lately because I've been reading about it. Confirmation bias that there's a mm -hmm. there's a part of me that just wants to write off Sufjan Stevens as insufferable. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, sufurable, insufurable. Yeah, uh, but this record's good. This record is good, and so mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, I'm happily uh, uh, recommending it as well uh, from here. Now, Arturo, to transition a little bit, 
remember a few episodes back when you admitted that you were cheating a little when you selected Mitski's The Land is Hospitable and So Are We for the Parallel Universe? Yeah. Well, guess what? You're cheating uh, too. <laughs> I'm basically doing the same thing here. Uh, I'll be covering uh, Little Yachty's uh, Let's Start Here. Uh, Little Yachty, uh, up until now, has been what I would consider a second-rate trap music hip-hop artist. Mm. Uh, he, he splits his time between Atlanta and New York. He's a an associate of the guys from Migos, uh, you know, Offset and The Late Takeoff and a few others. And up until now, he, his stuff has been kind of corny, and I guess you could call it pop trap, which is like, you know, just sound, just calling it pop track is ick. But <laughs> he he is a guy who's been successful. He's got at least three uh, top 10 records on the Billboard 200, which doesn't really mean much anymore. Uh, so Let's Start Here uh, was released about a year ago. Uh, it debuted at number nine and sold uh, 36,000 copies that week for, for uh, reference back in like like 25 years ago. Uh, the Backstreet Boys topped the uh, Billboard 200 with uh, 2.1 million copies. <laughs> and so uh, 36,000 probably wouldn't have even made the 200. If it did, it would have just barely made the cut. So yeah. it kind of shows that that's not exactly the best monitor, but yeah, physical media is practically yeah. dead. You know? Yeah, except exactly. For the, except for the except for the vinyl junkies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, uh, so, but that so that's to say that this guy does have a profile. However, uh, the reason we're talking about it is this new record is a shockingly great curveball that mm. uh, I just discovered in the last week. And it's been my driving music for the past few days. If I had to do my top 10 over again, remember how we said in that episode that top 10s are a moment in time. Well, if we could extend it to now, I think it would put it at number four. Uh, so let's describe this record. Uh, this is uh, in which a uh, a trap music guy uh, decides to get inspired by psychedelic rock and neo soul. Yeah. And and puts it and splices them together to get this really great, weird, uh, almost in some ways spooky and meditative mix of of really uh, interesting songs and interesting soundscapes uh, and probably the best sample of Bob Ross uh, ever used <laughs> uh, at, at the uh, the end of one of the more uh, sunnier psychedelic uh, songs uh, on the record. And so this album really, it, it's kind of a disorienting effect that, you know, this guy obviously has been very, very heavily influenced by both Tame Impala and Pink Floyd. I mean, yeah. imagine that, <laughs> that there's a mix for you. And there's very, very little rapping on this record, uh, which I guess is a good thing. And there's a lot of singing through filters and probably some auto tune going on. Uh, but it really, really works. I mean, this guy, I, you know, he's, he's much more uh, enjoyable and I think much more fitting of this type of style than of than of trap and i think he's in, in some ways he started to find a real voice mm. and uh it's one of those albums too that you know when you first hear it it's a little too long it could probably be about uh, four songs uh, shorter because some yeah. of the songs get a little samey towards the end yeah. but it's You're the right. kind of it's the kind of album that it, it at first it's kind of a WTF uh, record, but then mm -hmm. it's the kind of album to do to listen to and to absorb while you're driving or working out or napping or cleaning the kitchen. You know, it's, you know, it's a kind of, you need to be doing something to truly appreciate it and let it seep in because boy, does it sneak up on us. Uh, highlights uh, album uh, opener, the black Seminole and album closer reach the sunshine. This is where, uh, this is where Yachty gets uh, his most uh, freaky deaky. 
and uh, really evokes uh, Floyd, especially, and even, you know, 13th, I, I, well, what would you say, kind of like early 70s Prague in some ways, he kind of gets yeah. there, and it's it's kooky stuff, but it's really, really strong. Uh, he's got a nice uh, neo-soul song in the middle of the record called We Saw the Sun. Uh, that's the one with the distorted sample of Bob Ross talking through one of his paintings at the end. Right. Uh, he's got a couple of, uh, you know, solid R&B slash rock hybrid workouts. Uh, I've officially lost vision and the alchemist are probably mm. uh, my two favorites uh, there. And uh, and then should I be is it's got some some really compelling psychedelic noise that surrounds a catchy electro pop tune. So, mm. like I said, it does run a little too long, but I will say this. Uh, it's the second most adventurous album of any kind that I've heard over the last year, uh, I would put scaring the hose is more adventurous uh, scaring the hose by uh, JPEG mafia and Danny Brown, yeah. uh, a, a little bit ahead of this as far as adventurousness, but uh, this is, it, it, it it's a shocking curveball, but it's a welcome curveball. Arturo, what, yeah. what do you say about this record? Yeah. Um, this album is way more listenable than the JPEG mafia record. <laughs> <That's the laughs> one. Uh, yeah. I think that album is total trash, but anyway, this album is an album that I respect and whose audacity I admire more than I actually like. Um, this guy, Lil Yachty, he was a joke for a few years. He, like you said, second rate trap hip hop, or even third rate, like he was really not that good. But uh, it's a good thing that he decided to like you know do a, put a curveball into his career and step away from what he's known for. Uh, I think I think about half of it or a little more than half of it is a little too contrived and forced, and he's trying too hard. But there are a couple of really good songs. Uh, I I like the Black Seminole. I, yeah. I Seminole. I think that's a, probably the best song on the album. Oh, I and I really like and I really like We Saw the Sun as well. That's a really good song. And oh, but overall, yeah, it's okay. It's a record I I respect and admire more than I love. Hopefully, this will be a transitional record for him to really fine tune that psychedelic rock and neo soul uh, impulse that he has right yeah. now. No, I, hopefully I agree the next with you. record. Hopefully the next record will be a better version of this. Chris here again. Arturo and I have differing feelings about the subscription streaming service Spotify. While he likes to rail against the algorithmic component, I like the ability to find and then manage a personal catalog of music. The program is especially great for assembling playlists. Well, guess what? We've assembled a playlist to accompany this episode. The playlist features a healthy mix of all the music we describe and analyze during the episode. Think of it as a soundtrack to your curmudgeonly life. Find the link in this episode's description. And also become a member of our curmudgeonly community on Facebook if you haven't done so already. Let's now return to our regularly scheduled programming. B-sides, everyone. B-sides. Uh, obviously, as Arturo described in, in, at the top, the B-side is the other side of the single. And it is a place to, uh, to that a lot of artists keep some of their best work for uh, for grand effect, or at least used to. Uh, here's what I love about B-sides. One, they tend to be short, and two, they tend to be poppy as hell. You know, they yeah. tend they, they they tend to be uh, good little songs. They're not throwaways. They're, they're the best ones are fun nuggets, and not only that, they're 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 not afraid to actually say something uh, in mm -hmm. addition to the record. And a lot mm -hmm. of times, the B-sides are better 
uh, you know, these these 50 that we're talking about a lot in a lot of instances, these songs are better than anything else on the record. So there's not wasted notes. That's the thing. Right. These B-sides equal no wasted notes in general. So, well, well, some some are some are. I mean, yeah, I mean, th these are the top 50 that aren't wasted notes. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but you get a lot of three minute, four minute long pop songs. Uh, sometimes you get 11 minute, you know, uh, slop. But that's I think that's a rarity. So. That's why I love B-sides, man. You know, three th three minutes in a dream. Three mm -hmm. minutes in a dream, baby. So with that said, we've got 50 of these to run through. The lightning round starts now. Arturo, number 50. Number 50, The Rolling Stones with Dandelion, the B-side to the standalone single We Love You from 1967. Now, the Stones weren't really a B-sides kind of band. Most of their B-sides were just album tracks that they cobbled together to throw in there, you know? However, released right smack in the middle of the Summer of Love of 1967, and when Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were in and out of court, following their infamous drug bust from earlier in the year, this song, much more than the oddball A-side, We Love You, proves that the Stones could offer lovely, sun-kissed, psychedelic pop, as well as Donovan or the Beach Boys. Chris? Yeah, this is a very good impression of the Beatles here. Uh, yeah, it, true, yeah, true, true. It, yeah. it, it plays like a George Harrison tune from that era, or maybe from 68. <laughs> yeah. It has right. that. So they, you know, if they were competing with the Beatles, they didn't usually show it here. They do. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's as, as good as anything on uh, 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 her, her satanic majesty's request. Honestly, their satanic I, majesty's request. Their, their, uh, <laughs> not just hers, theirs as well. Theirs. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, this is, this is a pronoun heavy area. Uh, we got to, it's there. So, uh, but very, very good song. Uh, it, it's, it's lovely pop. Uh, George, mm. George, George Harrison, uh, reverence. There yeah. you go. Number 49, Franz Ferdinand with all for you, Sophia, the B side to take me out from 2004. This Scottish indie rock band was huge in the mid noughties or aughts. If, if you want to go with the American parlance. And this is the B side to their biggest hit single. Funky as hell with a catchy chorus that falls just short of being overly twee. This track also shows lead singer Alex Capranos utilizing a different vocal affectation than his usual lower register. It's rare that a B-side epitomizes a band's sound, but Franz Ferdinand's uh, funky hybrid of Gang of Four and early Duran Duran reaches a peak here. Chris? Yeah, I, and here I think it's a little bit more Duran Duran than Gang of Four. Uh, you know, <laughs> take take me out is one of the best songs of this entire century. Uh, yeah, uh, I love it, and so this is a fitting B side to that. It's it's just as punchy, though it's yeah. more traditionally dancey. Uh, right. And so you know, and 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 like you said, the vocal uh, the vocals are a little bit surprising, almost cheeky. Uh, yeah. In, in, in yeah. some respects. And so uh, good song, uh, folks. Go you know check out Franz Ferdinand's first three records. Really. Uh, yeah, I, you know, if you if you're not familiar with them, they're one of the, the, their formula and uh, Arturo hit it perfectly. Uh, they they just rock. And, yeah. you know, they, and, the, they, and you can and they're funky. You can dance to them too. and funky. They're, they're one of the great dance rock outfits, one of the great white dance rock outfits of the last 50 years, for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right. Number 48 clinic, the band clinic. And the, the B side is DT, the B side to monkey on your back from 1998. Now, this British band is probably the most obscure band on this list. Yeah. They had their moment back in 2002 with their excellent album, Walking With Thee. 
This B-side, dating back to the band's early days in the late 1990s, simply rocks with vicious abandon and cheeky sing-along backing vocals. The stop-start movement toward the end gives the track an extra push. Chris? Yeah, this is definitely a balls-out rock. It's also a definite precursor to the energy and the spirit of uh, walking with thee and I, yeah. I was i was a huge fan of walking with thee i mean i you yeah. know i think you remember summer of 2002 i kind of wore out that disc and yeah so yeah. Uh, so this is indicative of where that band was going and uh you know it's it's more lo-fi than what they were yeah. doing on walking right. with thee but it's just it, it's in the, it's in that wheelhouse so yeah, yeah good pick good pick yeah all right next number 47 Talking Heads, I Wish You Wouldn't Say That, the B-side to Psycho Killer from 1977. When Talking Heads emerged from the grimy scene of New York City's Bowery area clubs in the mid-1970s, they stunned and befuddled people with their thoroughly fresh take on rock and roll and innovative approach to songwriting and melody composition. Little did people know that this band, originally based in Providence, Rhode Island, would go on to not just become huge on both the critical and commercial level, but also as a profound influence on alternative and indie rock for multiple generations. This B-side from their 1977 debut single is raw as hell and almost sounds like a demo, but you can already hear David Byrne's visionary genius bubbling under the surface. Number 46, Weezer with Michael and Carly, spelled weirdly, M-Y-K-E-L and Carly, C-A-R-L-I. It's the B-side to Undone the Sweater Song from 1994. Now, remember when Weezer were a good band? Yep. I do. I do too. <laughs> this, this song, the B-side to their first hit on rock radio, is an is really an affecting heavy pop ditty uh, that sees frontman Rivers Cuomo reminiscing about a pair of childhood friends who died in a car accident. Early Weezer had this endearing ability to take traumatic moments in life and transform them into pop rock epiphanies. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, worth noting that this is the lead song on disc two of the deluxe edition of the Blue Album, uh, <laughs> you know, from, from 94. And yeah. uh, this song, a couple of notes. One, it is very, very Matt Sharp. Uh, it's yeah. almost as if the Reynolds are being born in the course of this song. Right. Uh, it's also very Pinkerton in theme and crunch. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's strange because it, it could work on the Blue Album, but I think it would work better uh, as a Pinkerton track. And so I think it, they, as you said, in, in they had those sort of dark themes about uh, dealing with trauma. Which is right. obviously, which is why Pinkerton became such a, uh, you know, it was like one of the, the the first social media breakout hits, like very early social media. Like yeah. we're talking prehistoric social media from like uh, 2000. Basically uh, blogs and <laughs> internet yeah. blogs of 1997 or yeah, no, later like, than 96. It was 99 when that album it was 99, 2000. It was around yeah. Napster and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Basically that was even pre-MySpace. Uh, yeah. but, but anyway, uh, yeah, uh, really great song and, uh, uh, surprising it could, it could have worked on the album. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a reason why it leads disc two, uh, yeah. of, of the deluxe edition of the blue album. Right. So there you go. Number, number 45, number 45, the yeah, yeah, yeahs with yeah, New York, the B side to date with the night from 2003. People tend to forget how fresh, invigorating, and original sounding the early Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs were. Yeah, really. And this B-side 
is a thrilling, lyrically minimalist ode to their native New York City. Rocking, sexy, quick and to the point. This is quintessential yeah, yeah, yeahs, and it reeks of authentic New York sleaze. Chris? Yes, it does. Great energy befitting of the city, and it kind of goes to what we talked about in our uh, episode uh, where we talked about, uh, what was it, 40 songs from New York City? Uh, yeah. About New York City. That it kind of goes to there. There's just there's something that lends itself uh, about that place that really lends itself to great anthem writing, yeah. And and this is a great anthem, especially it's it's really indicative of where the city was in terms of its rock and roll energy and rock and roll revivalism, right? Uh, at, at least in Brooklyn of, of that era, that 21, mm. 2001 to twenty oh four, that was kind of the yeah. uh, when the Strokes and James Murphy uh, first were rising up, and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs were part of that as well. So right. Uh, indicative of that and yeah you know, like you said uh, early yeah yeah yes uh you know they had this they had this kind of he heaviness to them but but also the the artsiness of the guitar that uh, really mm. stands out yeah. for sure number 44 pious with fatso for gotso the b-side to their standalone single and black sabbath cover into the void from 1996 this is the last release by stoner metal band Caius before guitarist songwriter Josh Homme transitioned himself to forming Queens of the Stone Age. It's a song of two halves. It starts with a monstrous, strutting, Led Zeppelin-style riff and a powerful rhythm track before drastically shifting gears midway through and settles into this groovy mid-tempo jam. You can smell the cannabis smoke emanating from this scorcher of a track, <laughs> and it finds Hami right between the heaviosity of Caius and the more groove-oriented oriented music he would explore with a Queens of the Stone Age. Chris? Yeah, good call. Good preview of Queen is of the Stone Age and, and their vibe. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll say this. The riff is on loan from the devil. The solo is the devil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it really, uh, you know, the, the second half where it just kind of just cranks. Uh, yeah. And this is the rare B-side. It's eight minutes and 31 seconds. It's the rare long one that works. Right. That it's not right. that it's not just a throwaway and it's just not it's not just slop to, to tack on. It actually works right. on its own accord. Right. Number 43, R.E.M. with Ghost Rider. It's a cover by the New York City art rock techno electronica outfit Suicide. And it's the B-side to Orange Crush from 1988. R.E.M. took an interesting approach to B-sides. Usually they used them as a platform for their often superb covers of other people's songs. And this is one of the very best. They take a song, like I said, by the experimental New York art punk band Suicide and completely transform it into sweaty funk rock. What was an avant-garde piece of synthesizer music is brought down to earth by Peter Buck's grimy, dirty guitar work and Michael Stipe's deadpan vocal delivery. It's a shame they never brought this puppy out live back um, back then because it kicks ass. Chris? Yeah, yeah, it does kick ass. It actually sounds like a leftover from Life's Rich pageant. It has that kind of <laughs> yeah, kind of sticky energy to it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they cover a song that has the line "Baby, baby, baby, he's looking so cute," and people yeah. actually wondered about Michael Stipe's sexuality. <laughs> yeah, that that it was that for some reason it was a source of speculation when the when it was pretty fucking obvious the entire time. Uh, yeah, if I you really if you really consider it. And so yeah. uh, it's definitely gnarlier than the stuff that made the cut for green. 
Right. Uh, and it's kind of a weird choice as a B-side for Orange Crush. I think, like you said, that, that there's if if the B-sides were more than, you know, them sort of putting their uh, if their spin on covers, if that was kind of a use for B-sides, then it makes sense. Otherwise, it's just kind of like, you know, one, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah. <laughs> Number 42, Ty Siegel with Mother Lemonade, B-side to The Hill from 2012. The guy this podcast refers to as Rock and Roll Jesus hasn't made a good album in a few years, but this B-side comes from Ty's peak period. The man has a gift for infectious riffs, and Mother Lemonade is no exception, augmented by an equally infectious vocal melody and chorus. Imagine T-Rex on steroids. Chris? Yeah, that's one way to put it. Another way to put it is, uh, what if like uh, L7 covered the Brian Jonestown Massacre? Uh, that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah it's it, it's extremely extremely grunge uh, uh reverent uh in and yeah. how it comes together but it also has that kind of throwback jonestown uh, uh yeah. rhythm rhythm to it. it has a little bit right. of a swing so it's so rock and roll jesus yeah goes full throttle and he he, he he's a good boy <laughs> number 41 pj harvey with Somebody's Down, Somebody's Name, the B-side to Down by the Water from 1995. The first of two B-sides by Polly Jean Harvey on this list. This track comes from PJ's absolute peak period in the 1990s when she was virtually reinventing blues rock with a defiantly feminine take on carnal passion without missing any of the visceral power that men have infused the genre with uh, for so many years. This is Harvey at her sweaty, demented best. It's a bit jammy and meandering, which explains its non-album status, but it's still excellent. Chris? Which is weird because I, I think it still would have worked on the record. I mean, I think that the guitar work on the record is incredible with this, the steel yeah. guitar and the acoustic slide stuff uh, right, going on right. there. It really is uh, worth noting. This is included on a three-hour collection called B-Sides, Demos, and Rarities that Polly Jean yeah. Harvey released in 2022, mm. uh, which is a really great set. Uh, definitely worth uh, worth checking out. And, you know, and I think, as you said, it's, it's uh, you know, her strongest era, and it's definitely uh, true to the swampy spirit of yeah. To Bring You My Love and, uh, yeah, that that album, To Bring You My Love. So right. that's great, great, great stuff. And and great and great vocal performance, too. Or Oh, she's an, still a phenomenal singer. Yeah, uh, number, yeah, number 40, Noel Gallagher or Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds, however you want to call it with Dead in the Water, B-side to Holy Mountain from 2017. Recorded live at a radio station in Dublin, this is the former Oasis head honcho showing a musical side of himself that he rarely ever did or has since. Yes, it's a romantic breakup song, but Gallagher really plums the depths of emotional pain with evocative lyrics and a fittingly pained vocal delivery. Hands down, it's one of the man's finest ballads. Younger brother Liam could not have sung it this well. Chris? No, or, or, or sung it at all, actually. I, 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 yeah. I'm not sure I could see it. Uh, this is as pretty as you'd expect uh, from Noel Gallagher in ballad mode. Yeah. And uh, I do like the fact that he was, you know, he was brave enough to put out the sort of the live, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of the live take uh, of mm -hmm. it because because that couldn't have been easy. Uh, yeah. you know, bearing, bearing himself like that. So, uh, pretty, pretty brave. It's a brave song anyway, but, but a brave choice, uh, to release mm -hmm. it in this form. Yeah. Number 39, you two with silver and gold, 
the studio version, <laughs> the B-side to Where the Streets Have No Name from 1987. This podcast is an unashamedly YouTube-friendly podcast. And yes, like it or not, this is one of two YouTube B-sides on this countdown. Deal with it. <laughs> this is the studio version of the track whose live version is more famous and can be heard on the band's Rattle and Hum album. Admittedly, the live version is a little superior, even with Bono's mid-song rant about apartheid, apartheid in South Africa and telling Edge to play the blues. But this studio version has a more haunted feeling to it, with the Edge's echo-filled guitar work alongside Adam Clayton's Ultra groovy baseline can't be denied, Chris. Yeah, uh, otherwise known as Bullet the Blue Sky Part Two, uh, <laughs> you know, really, really strong polemic uh, rock uh, by you yeah. two. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of the opening line in the shit house a shotgun. Yeah, uh, I think that's clever alliteration uh, on Bono's part, and it's it's an earworm uh, for sure. Uh, right. It's also available on there's you know, and this is kind of a theme you'll see that uh, anytime an out. An artist releases a deluxe edition uh, of an album. Uh, chances are, its best B sides are going to be there, uh, uh, featured prominently. And hey, lo and behold, the deluxe version of the Joshua Tree has uh, uh, has silver and gold on it. Mm -hmm. And it should. Yep. Number thirty-eight, Yoko Ono with "Listen, the Snow Is Falling" B side to John Lennon's "Happy Christmas, War Is Over" from nineteen seventy-one. Now, there are a lot of Yoko Ono haters out there, particularly among the baby boomer generation who can't get over their racism and sexism. And it's fair to criticize Yoko's screechy, screamy vocal attack on many of her more outre musical attempts. However, two things. First, she actually was a classically trained pianist who was better on the instrument than any of the four Beatles. Yep. And one can argue she should have stuck to that. <laughs> and, <laughs> second, and second, she had her moments of lovely, listener-friendly pop bliss. This is probably the best one she ever produced, or that Lennon helped her produce. Uh, if you heard this song for the first time and didn't know who did it, you would never guess it's Yoko Ono. Chris? Well, I mean, with the exception of the first twenty seconds, uh, you know, the, the way the way it starts, it's kind of it 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 starts with this really weird acapella uh, bit from Yoko, and it sounds like Yoko. But once you get past that, it's it's really 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 lovely. And a couple of notes: Harry Nelson covered it, and so did Galaxy Five Hundred. Uh, yes, the their version is their version is better. <laughs> yeah, their their version is fucking great. It it rocks out halfway through, and you know has an extended yeah. and solo and jam. Uh, and then here's a here's a question to ponder. Would you say that this might be a prehistoric shoegazer song? Maybe, um, maybe it's 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 not trippy enough for shoegazer. It doesn't have the the, the heavy yeah. guitar reverb for it. No, no. What what I mean is it just in terms of the form of the song and the, the, mm. the you know put 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 the put the shoegazer guitars behind it and it's like classic yeah. shoegaze. Sure, maybe I think. <laughs> I think. I think so. All right. Number 37, The Stone Roses with All Across the Sands, the B-side to Sally Cinnamon from 1987. 
The B-side to one of the finest British rock singles of the 1980s is almost its equal with its lilting, fluid beauty. There were other UK jangle pop bands before the Stone Roses, but none except for the Smiths did it better. And once the band augmented their sound with funk and dance beats a year later, they would become unstoppable. But this song finds them surfing the clouds and blissful jangle pop heaven. Chris? Yep, they are in jangle pop heaven, and and I'll, I'll I'll say I wasn't familiar with the song before we started doing this episode. One of the yeah. few that I wasn't, and yeah. uh, at first I was I said to myself, you know, this kind of evokes the cranberries, and then I'm <laughs> like, wait a second, the cranberries no. kind of evoke the Stone Roses, right? You know? Yeah, I have to get that right, and, and then again, it's like so did most of the British bands that followed in their wake. Right. Uh, you know, even, you know, you, you remove some of the, you know, they're more famous for the electronic stuff that they melded, uh, you know, starting in 88, 89 there. Uh, but at the, at the heart of it, these guys just wrote damn good pop tunes. Yeah, uh, they did. You know, they really they, did. They, 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 they're beautiful melodies, sneakily beautiful melodies. And, and yeah. here's an example of one of those. Right. Next number 36, black rebel motorcycle club with high low. Uh, the B-side to Stop from 2003. Perhaps the most underrated band of the noughties slash the aughts, San Francisco's Black Rebel Motorcycle Club had a five-album streak uh, from 2001 through 2010 that was so great the brilliance overflowed into B-sides and outtake compilations. Their brand of dark, sultry, smoky alternative rock reached a feverish pitch on this mesmerizing track, arguably better or even much better than the A-side it's supporting. Chris? Yeah, uh, you must have read my notes because I, I refer to them as one of the great unsung bands. Yeah. Uh, or hard rock bands anyway of the entire 2000s as in from 2000 to now. Uh, yeah. We can't we can't sing their praises enough here at the Curmudgeon Rock Report. I mean, they're just great. And this song is a monument to gnarliness and hypnosis simultaneously, yes. yeah. which is which is a neat feat. Right. Absolutely. Number thirty five, the Who, with Circles B side to Substitute from nineteen sixty six. For a band known for its superb run of singles throughout the 1960s, they had a surprisingly low number of great B-sides. This one, however, is easily the best of them, with the guitarist-songwriter Pete Townsend's penchant for evoking psychological turmoil and emotional angst, rarely more solidly portrayed, especially when, uh, when uh, encouraged and buoyed by the powerhouse rhythm section of John Entwistle and Keith Moon. It's a girl-done-me-wrong song, but it sounds and feels way more important than that. And that's one of Townsend's genius gifts. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it goes, it fits really, really nicely with Substitute. Uh, it yeah. has a similar swing and similar primitiveness. Uh, to and, the and lyrical theme too. And <laughs> and lyrical themes. And so, yeah, this is, uh, this is Townsend at, at, at his most like maudlin uh, as a lyricist. I mean, it's like happy music with maudlin lyrics. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's it's an interesting mix. Uh, also, can be found on an extended version of the album "My Generation" from 1965, from mm. late 1965. So you can find it yeah. there near the end. Yeah. It's like a 30 track, uh, you know, the, yeah. the one available on Spotify is like 30 tracks. This is one of oh, those. all these all these repackages always have the B sides to yep, them. Yep, yep, true yeah. enough. But I'm to, uh, we're just doing a public service and letting yeah. folks know where they can find these albums right. or find these songs. Right, number 34, The Kinks with King Kong. 
the B-side to Plastic Man, a standalone single from 1969. The socio-cultural commentary and character sketches that mark the best of Ray Davies' songs are absent here, but it hardly matters as this B-side finds the kinks getting back to stomping riff rock, proving they could always do it when they wanted to, or could have always wanted, done it when they wanted to. Awesome chord progression, sing-along chorus, la-la-la backing vocals. It has all the hallmarks of classic kinks. Chris? Yes, it does. And it also has the lyric, I'm King Kong and I have a hydrogen bomb. Uh, <laughs> so it's so a very, very funny song, a very, you know, yeah. very tongue in cheek. And uh, very clearly, this song is from the Village Green uh, Preservation Society sessions. It has mm -hmm. it has that kind of uh, feel to it. And it's the same kind of acoustics. Uh, I th yeah. actually think that this song belongs higher on the list. I'd have put it in, up in the 20s or even wow. the teens. Uh, mm, I, I think okay. it's great. I think it's a great song. And, yeah. you know, obviously the kinks being one of the best bands of all time, just yeah. a, just a killer song to me. I'm uh, really enjoyable. All right. Number 33, smashing pumpkins with hello kitty cat, the B side to today from 1993. Remember when smashing pumpkins were a good band? <laughs> I, I do. I do. <laughs> and this outtake from their classic Siamese Dream album, relegated to a B-side, is simply ferocious. Loud, heavy, rocking, melodic, majestic. Everything that was good about early pumpkins is here to be enjoyed. Chris? Yeah, and you can also find this on a very underrated B-Sides collection from 1994 called Pisces Iscariot. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, they released on the heels of Siamese Dream. And right. uh, I mean, the album is most famous for a really horrendously bad cover of Fleetwood Mac's Landslide. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but the rest of it is fantastic. Uh, so this is one of those songs that proves just how great of a drummer Jimmy Chamberlain was. Right. Uh, you know, he's, this, he's this Billy Corgan's secret weapon. <laughs> yeah, he, he's in superhuman mode here. He's he's basically it, it's a very octopus arms. It's it's uh, yeah. the playing is very reminiscent of Geek USA, which is one of the best yeah. drum fill uh, arrangements right. I've ever heard in my life. So yeah. Uh, yeah, really great stuff from Smashing Pumpkins and uh, just they were masters of this kind of thing. Right. Number 32, The White Stripes with Black Jack Davey, a traditional folk song, which is, makes it a cover, and the B-side to Seven Nation Army from 2003. The B-side to Jack White's most famous song is a reworking of an old traditional Scottish folk ballad about a woman who leaves her husband to run away with a charming rogue of a man. But the chemistry between Jack and Meg White, who by this time had become an, an underratedly competent drummer, oh, yeah. is what drives this song into the heights of rock panacea. Only Jack White can take, Yank take a Yankee Doodle style melody and transform it into a badass fuzz drenched riff. Chris? Yeah, and uh, yeah, you're right. Meg White's drumming on this thing is great. Uh, it just kind of captures the quirks of of White's natural rhythms uh, yeah. here, uh, and so really good stuff. And it's kind of funny that to me, when I heard it, I I didn't know it was a Scottish folk ballad. To me, I thought it was a take on like a very apocalyptic Western cowboy theme. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Like 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 Frankie Lane could have sang that for like some John Wayne movie from the fifties. Yeah. Like it could have been the uh, it could have been the theme song to Big Jake. You know, the, <laughs> one of those like over the top uh, story songs, and it, this also could have worked on the style. I mean, it has a, uh, it's a close, sure. close cousin to that record, uh, closer yeah. cousin to that record than the Elephant, and right. prob probably explains why it remind remained a B side. Right, number thirty one, P.J. Harvey, 
The faster I breathe, the further I go, B-side to the wind from 1999. The single came out in 99. Miss Harvey is back with another slice of heavy as fuck, swampy, steamy blues rock that is so heavy and swampy and steamy that in no way could it have fit the album whose sessions it came from. That being 1998's Is This Desire, an album that saw Harvey delve into electronic beats and trip hop. It's too bad because this song would have found a perfect home on any of her earlier 1990s records. It's trancy, it's hypnotic, it's cathartic, it's polygene at her most scintillating. Chris? Big, giant, huge, fat-ass riff. Yeah. Uh, and uh, also, by the <laughs> don't, way... Don't, 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 <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's 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 just an awesome riff, and she's a very distinctive guitar player. You yeah, know, she just had that, you know, in terms of her tones and tunings and all that, just very distinct. And this is just sort of orthodox poly poly gene. Uh, this right. is also, by the way, on that 22 B-sides and demos collection for. Oh, nice. For, for, Sweet. It, yeah, definitely go check that out, folks. Yeah. Number 30. Once again, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club with Feel It Now, the B-side to Weight of the World from 2005. The B-side to one of the singles off BRMC's finest album, in my opinion, 2005's Howl, is a masterclass of piano balladry that Coldplay would have pimped their mothers for. This was the period where the band were going away from their usually bombastic alternative rock style and delved into country blues and folk, all the while fine-tuning their songwriting chops to new levels of profundity. This short, haunting track is as stark as it gets, but needs nothing else else to drive its pathos home chris yeah really pretty song and it shows that it sure they rocked but they were also very capable of reaching tremendous melodic right. uh heights and yeah. uh this album is, this song is really really interesting because it's got that acoustic loveliness but it's got these subtle guitar highlights yeah uh, that really uh you know kind of augment the arrangement and really give it a more emotional depth and right. uh, definitely, uh, this is one of those songs that uh, it's actually not on Spotify, uh, folks. It's uh, all these songs you can find on YouTube, but uh, right. this one and uh, a couple of songs by REM that we're covering uh, can be found uh, exclusively on, on YouTube. So uh, go check it out. Right. Number 29, Arctic Monkeys with seven, as in number seven, the B-side to When the Sun Goes Down from 2006. Remember when Arctic Monkeys were a good band? I do. I do. <laughs> Nowadays, you can listen to the band whittle away with pretentious, generic, bland, indie pop fluff full of cliche romantic relationship songs. But back in the noughties slash aughts, they were a stalwart, punky rock and roll band, one of the best British bands of that time and decade, and they weren't afraid to go balls out. On this sterling B-side, a story of a night out gone wrong, the Arctics encapsulate all the hooky riffs clever character sketches and booming musicianship that characterized their early years into one song. Chris? Yeah, pretty much. It's a rapid fire, rocked out two minute ditty. And yeah. it's just really quirky and uh, really fun uh, with fun lyrics. And They were such just, a fun band back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, they were. Yeah. That 2006, 2007 period, they were, they were one of the more fun bands uh, in the yeah. world. And, you know, I've never been a huge Arctic Monkeys fan, but they are fun. Uh, were okay. fun were <laughs> were they were yeah now, 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 now they've gotten a little bit mopey dopey 
but yeah. uh, but back then they were they were mad fun, and and this is uh, a testament to that. Yeah, number twenty eight, pavement with no tan lines, the B side to Shady Lane from nineteen ninety seven. Chris, you used to characterize Pavement's music as good music done badly. I basically still do. Refer, basically referring to their early lo-fi sound. Well, this track kills that theory yes, by proving that frontman Stephen Malkmus could shred on guitar whenever he felt like it. It's also a rhythmically complex song with its oddball time signature. Pavement's discography is long on excellent B-sides and EP tracks, and this is arguably their very best. Chris? Yeah, I would say that it's up there too. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of this song uh, as well, and it it really shows Malcolm's quirks as a songwriter. I think it would have worked on the album. I um, mean, it has that kind of ironic sweetness that would be in the pocket of of that record. Obviously, it's nowhere near as good as its B uh, as as its A side, uh, right. which is one of the best songs of the last thirty years. Uh, worth noting again. Uh, here's another deluxe version. Uh, uh, <laughs> deluxe version of Bright in the Corners which was mm. released in 2022 to commemorate its 25th anniversary. Uh, this is on, uh, on, you know, deep, deep, dark uh, part of the album. It's, a, you know, basically a box set. And so yeah. uh, th this is on that. But but yeah, great song. Number 27, Mud Honey with Sweet Young Thing Ain't Sweet No More, B-side to Touch Me I'm Sick from 1988. The Grunge Pioneers debut single is one of the most ferocious ass-kicking slices of rock music to ever come out of the 1980s, and its B-side is almost as good. Sludgy is the operative word here, and its mid-tempo grind and Steve Turner's demented slide guitar bring us the story of a young girl who falls from grace and out of favor with her conservative parents. No one does snotty vocals like Mark Arm. Chris? No, not at all. Uh so this is uh, track two on the album Super Fuzz Big Muff. Oh uh, uh, no 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 no! Hold on, Super Fuzz Big Muff um, is, is is actually the six tracks after Sweet Young Thing ain't Sweet No More. What you're referring to is like this the compilation hybrid that they put out a few years later that starts okay. off with uh, Touch, Touch Me, me I'm, I'm Sick, sick. and Sweet Young Thing and Sweet yeah. Young Thing, and then goes into the Super Fuzz Super Fuzz Big Muff songs. Okay, well that that is uh, thank you for that clarification. Uh, you know, this is basically jumbo size Super Fuzz Big Muff, uh, right. but it's it's right there. But the, but the version that you can find of this album on the the streaming sites has uh, the single. You know, has right. has the two songs from the single. Right. Anyway, right. guitars brought to you by Robitussin. Slowed, <laughs> yeah. stretched down, just, down, down. Yeah, just yeah, just really. You know, they they they're in a zone. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's a very, it's a very sticky. You know, like I said, uh, Mar you know, Mark Arm really knew how to uh, make a dark joke, and so yeah. this is this is in dark joke land, and uh, really, uh, the music matches the lyrics, mm, <laughs> for better yeah. or worse. For better or worse, <laughs> depending on your perspective. For so. all the better. Come on, Mud Honey are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number 26, Nirvana with Dive, the B side to Sliver from 1990. Heartwarming is an adjective that is never used to describe a Nirvana song, but yep. that's exactly what Sliver is, in addition to being punchy, poppy, and infectious. For the B-side, though, they go back to the grunge depths with one of the best riffs Kurt Cobain ever came up with. Yeah. Simple but effective guitar work was always the hallmark of the very best Nirvana songs, of which there were many, even their B-sides. Chris? 
heavy shit and deceptively great riff. It, it sneaks yeah. up on you. Uh, clearly, it's Grohl on drums. Uh, some of the stuff on Incesticide, which is the B-Sides collection that this uh, right. is uh, that this can be found on. Some of that stuff, as I understand it, has uh, Chad Canning on drums. But this is clearly Grohl. And yeah. I, I think it's a cousin in spirit to uh, the song School from Bleach, which yeah. uh, to me is one of their best, uh, one of the top 10 Nirvana songs. I love that song. But this is kind of a cousin of that in terms of its uh, scuzziness. On this episode, we gave you our picks for rock music's 50 greatest B-sides. For the next episode, we're going to shift gears and bring you the sequel to our Birth of Hip Hop episode from last year. During the years 1980 through 85, this newborn genre experienced its growing pains. But these were positive growing pains, as many rappers and DJs, mostly in New York at this time, were shaping, defining, and setting the parameters for this music that would be explored, expanded upon, and stretched out by future generations of hip-hop artists. We're going to examine key, important, and freaking great singles by the likes of Africa Bombada, Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, and The Furious Five, and then end by examining two huge signpost-shifting album releases by LL Cool J and Run DMC. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you Hip Hop Comes of Age. That was the first half. Here comes the second half. Number 25 on the list of the greatest rock B-sides uh, is... The Verve with Never Wanna See You Cry, the B-side to Lucky Man from 1997. When the British band The Verve started in the early 1990s, they were stargazing psychedelic rockers. By the time of their commercial breakthrough and magnum opus, Urban Hymns, in 1997, they cut back on their earlier noise indulgences and became a stately modern rock band with a penchant for epic sweeping ballads and even scored an international hit single with Bittersweet Symphony. Their follow-up single, Lucky Man, carried with it a B-side of beguiling and emotionally resonant beauty that ranks among the most gorgeous, deeply moving ballads of the 1990s Britpop era. Chris? Yeah, this is a, one of a couple of songs I actually wasn't familiar with before now, uh, and yeah. I'm sorry I wasn't, because I think this song's even lovelier than Lucky Man, which is saying something, because Lucky Man's <laughs> yeah. a pretty damn lovely song. Yeah. And uh, this is just an opportunity to say again, poor Richard Ashcroft. I mean, yeah. one, the guy decided better. He deserved to be a multi-time hit maker. I mean, he just was yeah. so good. And so, and then the one hit he gets, uh, his his royalties got stolen from him for over 20 years. Fuck uh, you, Alan Klein. <laughs> yeah, fuck, yeah, seriously, fuck you, Alan Klein. I mean, it just got to the point where like literally the story is he he calls up Keith and Mick or, or like Mick and Keith gave the blessing. And so yeah. Ashcroft is finally making his uh, his royalties like way too late. Uh, right. so, but, uh, also worth noting, this song just has a beautiful uh, cello part on it. I mean, sure. It just adds a hell of a lot of texture. I mean, right. you know, those sort of, you know, mellotrons and cellos to me are always, are always, uh, invited and always welcome because they bring out the, t if, if it's a, a song is beautiful, cellos and mellotrons just make them that much more beautiful. Right. And speaking of beautiful, <laughs> number 24, okay. the kinks are back with Polly, the B-side to Wonder Boy from 1968. 
Rock and roll tradition is full of lyrics about young people running away from home, looking for freedom and self-actualization and escape from conservative tradition. Well, on this splendid slice of vintage kinks, Ray Davies upends that trope by telling the story of a young girl, probably a teenager, who mm -hmm. runs away from home, learns that the outside world and quote-unquote freedom isn't all it's cracked up to be, and returns home to her happy parents. In a way, it's a repost to the Beatles she's leaving home from the previous year. <laughs> it's a testament to Ray Davies' brilliance and empathy as a lyricist that he conveys this story without any of the sentimentality and self-righteous moralism that one would expect from such a theme. Uh, add in a raucous, rowdy chorus that harkens back to traditional English music hall and theater in, uh, and that isn't trite at all or filled with any pastiche, and you have the kink's most brilliant B-side. Chris? Yeah, that's a good point you just made, that uh, Ray Davies, uh, when he didn't play it straight, he made that blatantly obvious, but most of the right. time he played it straight. Uh, yeah. You know, kind of like, uh, like, you know, like the song Low Budget. Uh, he's yeah. definitely not playing it straight. But yeah. uh, but on something like this, he's definitely playing it straight. And it's, you know, fun vocal delivery on the song and a classic Ray Davies melody. And uh, one thing when people think about the, uh, the the kinks, you know, they think about the early guitar fuzz stuff. Right. And or they'll think about the guitar part to uh, picture book or, you know, some of some of those songs or even like the guitar stuff or the acoustic guitar on Waterloo Sunset. Uh, they did some really beautiful piano tunes. And, sure. you know, their, their piano songs are just uh, of uh, their par excellence there. Yeah. Know, and that is one definite underrated thing about the kinks is the, is the piano stuff. And so uh, you, I, I, I really like this song a lot. Yeah. Number 23 Slater Kinney with everything, the B side to entertain from 2005 when it's slow burn feedback drenched intro uh, this song explodes and perfectly captures the essence of the cathartic, visceral energy and power that marks the best of Slater Kinney, especially when Janet Weiss was still manning the drum kit. This podcast's choice for the single greatest female rock and roll band of all time, Slater yep. Kinney give us a B-side that is every bit the equal of any of the best tracks from the album whose sessions this came from, 2005's The Woods. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now this, uh, the, you know, now this B song, this B side is, uh, it's the B side to one of the the best songs of the entire two yeah. thousands uh, yeah. rock songs, and so it, it just gets goodwill for that. Even if it was mediocre, it would still get goodwill for that. But hey, it turns out to be a great damn song. Uh, right. Carrie Brownstein is in her glory as a guitar, and great yelping vocals from Corin Tucker on the right. chorus, and so it's just it's it. And like you said, Janet Weiss was just you know she's like King Kong on drums. I mean, she's yeah. just awesome drummer. And so yeah. everything comes together here. Uh, I could see why it's a B-side because it, it doesn't quite have the same. Uh, it's it's because the woods, every, the woods, when I think the woods, I think of the word grandeur. Mm -hmm. uh, every, everything yeah. on that record has grandeur. This doesn't sure. quite have grandeur. It crunches and it booms, but it doesn't have right. quite have grandeur. So right. I can understand why it didn't make the final cut for the album. Right. right. Number 22, Nirvana again, with Even in His Youth, B-side to Smells Like Teen Spirit from 1991. As soon as Nirvana busted out of the major record label gates with the album Nevermind and the single Smells Like Teen Spirit, the band, and Kurt Cobain in particular, uh, they were heralded as spokespeople 
for a generation and the musical expression of disaffected youth. The B-side to that monumental single is that expression incarnate, yep. with Cobain singing a character sketch of a young man who wasted his youth trying to live up to his parents' lofty ideals and still falling short. The blunt lyrics and Cobain's vocal delivery make the track memorable enough, but augmented with a typically great Cobain-esque melody and tight songcraft, you have one of the greatest B-sides of all time. Chris? Yeah, ab absolutely. I would I would actually put this a little higher on the list. I'd have put it up in the teens. Uh, this So, you know, again, this is the lead song on disc two of the deluxe edition of Nevermind. <laughs> uh, and so that's, that's a good place to find it. A tremendous song. Uh, love the melody. Uh, and one thing about this, uh, the B-sides that came out of Nevermind is that uh, clearly uh, Andy Wallace did not mix them uh, <laughs> yeah. because uh, the 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 sound is way muddier and way grittier and way dirtier on these yeah. B-sides. They're like more akin to something from Bleach or even in Utero. Uh, they, yeah. have a, they have a roughness to them that uh, I know that, you know, Cobain is famously was never a fan of Andy Wallace's mix, which I think he's out of his mind. I think that's one of the best mix jobs in the history of rock and roll. At uh, that time, he loved it. It was later on because it got so big, he felt a little embarrassed about it. Yeah, because, yeah, oh, okay. Well, that well, I guess that makes sense, but... But for whatever reason, uh, Andy Wallace clearly uh, didn't touch these B sides because, again, they they just have like way more of a uh, mm. way more of a punk vibe to them than a than a power pop vibe. Yeah, uh, which uh, you know the Wallace's mix uh, provided uh, so beautifully. Right. But uh, so that, that that that's worth mentioning. Uh, you know, so but yeah, great song. Number twenty one, Radiohead with Polyethylene Parts One and Two. The B-side to Paranoid Android from 1997. Radiohead have a pretty good history with producing worthy B-sides, keeping in the tradition of great British bands. This one is, in my opinion, hands down the best of all of them, of all the Radiohead B-sides, with its surging, soaring, almost majestic verses and chord progressions, oddly without a real chorus. And it sounds more like an outtake from the Benz than OK Computer. Chris? Yeah, you must be reading my notes again. Uh, yeah, this is uh, nothing comes close. I mean, nothing on OK Computer comes as close to evoking the bends uh, yeah. as this song. And also, it's worth noting, it's a complete 180 from its A side. You know, yeah. par par Paranoid Android is uh, it's bombastic, but it's it, it's more sort of in the queen operatic sense here. It's just like right. straightforward bash out bombastic rock. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it starts off with that sort of quiet, which I guess is part one, this kind of quiet intro thing. Right. And and then it just comes into this like soaring uh, arena rock uh, anthem. Mm. So, right. yeah. So uh, you talk about juxtaposition, you know, like you have uh, there's an A side and then a B side. And, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, you, you know, polar opposites. Right. Yeah. Number 20, The Clash with Pressure Drop, a cover of Toots and the Maytals the B-side to English Civil War from 1978. The Clash were never shy about their love of reggae, dub music, or any kind of music that came from Jamaica. What's particularly striking about this cover is the pure, unadulterated joy that the band, and particularly Joe Strummer with his, bomb, with his bombast in general, imbue the track with. It rocks with an urgency, energy, and authenticity that's better than anything on the second half of the album, Give Him Enough Rope, making you wonder how much the album would have improved with this song's inclusion. 
Chris? Yeah, it could be. I mean, this is just uh, evidence for the uh, for casual fans that Guns of Brixton wasn't just a vanity one-off. Yes. Uh, that uh, the this just makes the uh, the reggae uh, influence clear as day uh, yeah. by covering Toots and the Males. And hey, find this one on a 2013 box set that uh, was released uh, called Sound System, which mm. has all kinds of odds and sods uh, from The Clash on it. Yeah. Toots and the Maytals, not the Males. <laughs> Maytals. The males. Oh, oh, that that's the blues breakers guy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Number 19, the jam with Carnaby Street, B-side to All Around the World from 1977. Throughout his time in the dreadful style council and in his solo career, Paul Weller has always come off like a cut-rate bargain bin Ray Davies. But <laughs> At his best, when he was in the jam, his socio-cultural commentaries on class with their political undercurrents would have made the kinks mastermind proud. On this rocking track, Weller bemoans the social gentrification of not just a location, but an entire scene that was at the forefront of youthful countercultural insurrection at one time. It's a bit naive. Weller was 19 years old when he wrote it, after all. But you can definitely relate to the feeling of loss of something that you once loved and cherished. Chris? Okay. Song is featured on a 2017 box set called 1977. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why it's called that. Uh, yeah. it, it, so this song ain't that's entertainment, but yeah. it's still pretty damn good. Uh, yeah. Great 70s punk energy. And I, I think hints of very early new wave. Uh, sans the keyboards, mm. obviously. But it, yeah. it, it has this bridge feel between the punk of the streets and the new wave right. of the clubs. Uh, and so yeah. I would I would say that it, it, it's, it's proto primitive new wave in right. my mind. Yeah. Number 18. Nirvana with Curmudgeon. Our national the, anthem. Yeah. The B-side to Lithium from 1992. The last Nirvana track on this list is the very song that this podcast named itself after. And appropriately, it's arguably the band's greatest B-side. Nothing can beat that incendiary, corrosive riff that introduces the song before Dave Grohl crashes in with his savage drum attack. Cobain's lyrics are indecipherable through his throaty wail, but when it rocks with this much conviction and intensity, does it even matter? Chris. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it, if you didn't know any better, you would think that this was an in utero outtake instead of a, yeah. uh, instead of a, um, nevermind outtake. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost as if, uh, uh, Cobain wanted it on this single with, uh, with lithium, just as yeah. kind of a commentary about lithium. I'm sort of yeah. saying, yeah, that, that I'm doing for the kiddos here. Uh, this is, I'm doing for the junkies. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it has that kind of, it, so the juxtaposition is pretty striking. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, it's another one of those side A, side B type of deals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Number 17, Oasis with the master plan B side to Wonderwall from 1995. In a musical movement, Brit pop, that self consciously evoked Britain's pop music past, no band embraced the ethos of the B-side like Oasis. Nope. Collect all their B-sides from 1994 through 96, put them together, and you have easily one of their three best albums. <laughs> yep. um, this epic anthemic ode to guilt-free self-fulfillment is one of Noel Gallagher's finest vocal performances, stealing the thunder from little brother Liam, and answers the question, what would it sound like if mid-1960s Burt Bacharach had produced Sgt. Pepper's instead of George Martin? 
Chris? <laughs> okay, that that's an interesting one. Uh, I wouldn't have thought of, but that's good. Uh, and actually, this album, this song is on their third best record, which is a B-sides comp called The Master Plan, which came right. out in 1998. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, the only th the only thing I can figure as to why this didn't make what's the story morning glory is because don't look back in anger uh yeah. it was better I mean <laughs> yeah. if, if you're gonna pick a no lead vocal you got to pick don't look back in anger I mean that's one of the best songs like ever uh yeah. <laughs> th th this is a this is a really great song too but it ain't it ain't that good and that's yeah. the only that's got to be the only reason it didn't make the record because it's better than like half the stuff on uh on what's the story yeah what's the story is a great album but uh but this stuff this song is better than half the stuff on that and it's and it's actually a very it's an ideal uh b-side to wonderwall you know mm. so it really works well yeah number 16 modest mouse with whatever you breathe out i breathe in b-side to broke from 1996 if you're only familiar with Modest Mouse from the Naughties and the and, and the albums Good News for People Who Love Bad News and We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank, you're really missing out on the yes, raw, are. searing, emotional intensity of early Modest Mouse and their innovative, thoroughly original approach to post-Pixies alternative rock. On this B-side, Isaac Brock wearily details the toll taken by a crippling codependent relationship and ratchets up the intensity with a soaring, cathartic chorus. Lovely guitar work, too. Chris? Yeah, very lovely guitar work. Uh, this found its way onto the 2000 album, Building Nothing Out of Something. Yeah, it's a compilation. Uh, yeah, and stuff like yeah that. a compilation that they did that, but that, that's where you can find it. Uh, great Ode to Depression. Well, yeah. you know, maybe maybe not so great, but you know what I mean. It's it, yeah. it's definitely very accurate. Uh, so the lyrics yeah. definitely resonate with me. You know, all the stuff about uh, you know not not being able to get out of bed and uh, yeah, you know the the hours becoming days and things like that. Yeah. So uh, right. it's a it's a relatable song. It's 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 kind of a it's it's an em emotional song, and it's an experience to listen to it. I would say if you're in a bad mood, don't listen to it. Yeah, because <laughs> because it, it'll probably put you in a worse mood. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying, because it is so true to, you know, mm -hmm. it's 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 depression. It's like clinical depression in musical form. All right. Number 15, The Smiths with please, please, please let me get what I want. B-side to William. It was really nothing from 1984. You would imagine that the best, the best British singles band of the 1980s would have sterling B-sides, but in fact, their B-side quality was inconsistent. By far the best of the bunch, though, is this track, which clocks in at only one minute and 50 seconds. But in that short time, Johnny Marr beguiles the listener with his gorgeous chord progressions on acoustic guitar while tickling with his elliptical lead guitar line. It's easy to hate Morrissey now for the douchebag that he is, yep. but at his peak with the Smiths, no British rock or pop singer could convey longing and crippling depression that anyone could identify with like he could. A truly heart-meltingly -me beautiful song. Chris? Yeah, gorgeous set of lyrics, uh, and like you said, gorgeous uh, tune. It's, it's actually one of my favorite Smith songs. Uh, mm -hmm. Worth noting, it's the closing song to the album Hatful of Hollow. And uh, that's a compilation in of itself, too. Oh, oh, that's a compilation as well, which is yeah. funny because William, it was really nothing is the first song on that compilation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So th these are the they, that was originally it was originally a standalone single. And they yeah. they, 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 they plucked it on. Yeah, they tacked it on, which is the story for a lot of these uh, the, yeah. for a lot of these songs. Uh, worth right. noting, it, it, this is the shortest uh, song on the yeah. uh, on, on the list. 
<laughs> and a, a really great economical use of a, a minute and 50 se uh, cents seconds. They really, uh, they're in, out, and just really effective and affecting. Uh, yeah, one of my favorite Le Morrissey lyrics. Uh, yeah. There's, there's that, which, by the way, to tell you the truth, is a short list. I'm not a huge Smiths fan. <laughs> Number 14, The Stone Roses with the hardest thing in the world, B-side to Elephant Stone from 1988. We stay in Manchester, UK for the next band with the single Elephant Stone. The Stone Roses had properly commenced their full immersion into ecstasy-tinged dance rock. The B-side, however, is a sticky sweet piece of rock candy heaven. The riff, the slinky bass line, the irresistible verses, the heavenly chorus, the out of nowhere bridge, it's a stone cold, perfect pop song. And this would be to this day, most bands best song. Chris? Yeah, no doubt. And again, it 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 ratchets it down the electronics, but it it at yeah. its heart, it's definitely a very, very Stone Roses song. Yeah. Uh can be found on a 1992 compilation called Turns Into Stone, mm. uh, which, you know, you know, kind of that was sort of their uh bon voyage. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, or volley because yeah. at that point they were done. Uh, but yeah, pretty song, but also edgy. I mean, really yeah. edgy and tense right. song. It's pretty but tense, and right. so uh, you know, those are my in some ways my favorite kind of songs. Like think like U two's one, pretty right. but tense. Uh, yeah. So it's it's in that vein. Speaking, Speaking of U two, <laughs> yeah, number thirteen, U two with dancing barefoot a Patti Smith cover, the B-side to When Love Comes to Town from 1989. Fuck you, U2 haters, they're back. Yes. This steaming, sultry cover of a Patti Smith song is, to my mind, way better than the original. With Bono's skillful, passionate croon and the Edge's appropriately stinging, nasty guitar providing the necessary juxtaposition, after listening to it, you realize that this should have made the cut for the album Rattle and Hum, Chris. Yeah, yeah, it definitely should have made the cut for Rattle and Hum. And uh, I actually have to disagree with you. I don't think it's better than the original. I think the original is one of the best rock songs ever written. Uh, I think I, I think Bono's I, vocals are better. Yeah, I, I, I love I love the song, uh, and I, I love Patti Smith's treatment of it. It's it's very understated, but it's just it's a powerful, powerful song. And uh, but it it's appropriate for you too because yes I mean it is in uh, Bono's wheelhouse as a vocalist and definitely 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 in Edge's wheelhouse as a guitar player uh, the the lead lines capture the melody on this thing incredibly incredibly well oh yeah definitely and, oh, oh and, and and it's worth mentioning it's on their album the best of 1980 to 1990 uh, yeah. which was a box set that actually had a it was a, a Ballyhood release back in the early 90s. It got a lot of press and sold late, very well. Late, late, late 90s. Late 90s. But I just remember it was an event yeah. when it came out. Right. Yeah, yeah. Number 12, R.E.M. with Arms of Love, a cover of a Robin Hitchcock song, B-side to Man on the Moon from 1992. R.E.M.'s greatest B-side is also, in my mind, their greatest cover. The arrangement is extremely simple, you know, just acoustic guitar strumming and Peter Buck's lead line gently coming in and out. However, it's Michael Stipe's impassioned and heavenly vocal delivery that give the song its emotional resonance. No band, or in fact, no singer, could blend sadness and hope the way R.E.M. did in their prime. And it's easy to forget how powerful and evocative of a singer Stipe was at his peak. 
No wonder this came from the sessions from their greatest album, Automatic for the People. Chris? Oh, and it's a song that perfectly fits where the band was musically during that Automatic for the People era. Right. And it's a right. perfect B-side for Man on the Moon. I mean, if, yeah. you, if, you, if you didn't know it was Robin Hitchcock, you would have thought Bill Berry wrote it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's very much, very much in his style. And I got I to gotta give a shout out to the baseball stadium organ in the middle of the song. Uh, yeah. it, it makes me think that Take Me Out to the Ball Game is about to bust out. <laughs> well, I mean, apparently Peter Buck is a big baseball fan, so it's not surprising. Me. Yeah, there you not go. Not surprising at all. Number 11, Joy Division with Dead Souls. The B-side to Atmosphere from 1980. How the hell was this song the B-side and Atmosphere the A-side? Oh, <laughs> <You> know, I know. <laughs> li listeners yeah. of the Gen X variety might know this song more by the cover that Nine Inch Nails did for the soundtrack to the movie The Crow back in 1994. Yeah. But make no mistake, as good a job as Trent Reznor did with it, the original is far superior with its long intro where the band intensifies the tension and drummer Stephen Morris's tribal drums setting an enchanted setting an enchanted spell singer Ian Curtis soon comes in with uh, with his Jim Morrison as vampire croon <laughs> when the track blasts into its anthemic chorus and monstrous guitar riff you have no choice but to admit that this is one of the best rock songs and definitely b-sides that you've ever heard chris yeah agreed uh find this on a 2010 comp called substance which collects mm. uh, joy division songs between 1977 and 1980 yeah. uh just a really cool vibe and it's got that beat that just grows hypnotic over yeah. the course of five minutes it just gets more it, it really really draws you in and i will say this uh listening to this song uh several times in the course of preparing for this episode may just trigger a joy division phase for me well, uh, I, they, they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I don't know why they still. Yeah, are. I'm, 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 that that's really just kind of befuddling. I guess uh, uh, you know, there's no, no fans of Ian Cur uh, Curtis or Bernard Sumner. But Bernard Sumner must have pissed somebody off. <laughs> as yeah. I can figure. Number ten, The White Stripes with Jolene, a Dolly Parton cover, the B-side to Hello Operator from 2000. When we did an episode a while back about the greatest rock cover versions of all time, I really wanted to put this on it and quite highly as well. There's nothing wrong with Dolly Parton's original, but there's a majestic anthemic power and haunting quality to what the Stripes do with it that leaves uh, their version, in my opinion, unmatched. A song originally sung from a female perspective and then transferred to a male perspective also gives it an intriguing dynamic. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jack White really does a great job with this song. I like it better than the original, although the original is pretty rousing. It's one yeah. of Dolly's most rousing songs and and yeah. and one of her better uh, straight vocal performances. You know, right. like, you know, I've, I've come to love Dolly Parton as a vocalist because there's a lot of wink, wink, uh, yeah. nudge, nudge. And she, mm -hmm. she's a very, very funny she she doesn't get as much credit for her humor uh, yeah. and a dark sense of humor, but uh, but anyway, uh, this stripe song is really really uh, really great cover, uh, uh, and it, it goes really well with Hello Operator because you get like blues on one side and country on the other as filtered right. through the Jack White thing. Go and, rock the fuck out country. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, rock the fuck out country, and uh, yeah, this this is one of those songs, by the way, that. Uh, that one uh, there was one reason that Meg White was a was an underrated drummer because she was an inconsistent drummer. Uh, yeah. You know this one she's about she's about a step too uh, too quick. 
Yeah. And so it, it, but but it has actually kind of a funny effect to it. I mean, if if it's a if it's a revenge ba- if it's a revenge ballad or a revenge fantasy, then maybe being a beat off does uh, hey beat off uh, doesn't uh, <laughs> you know is uh, is not so bad. Yeah, number nine, Oasis with "Come On, Feel the Noise," a cover of the band Slade, B side to "Don't Look Back in Anger" from 1996. This song was also in our top 10 of greatest rock cover versions. Uh, And in that episode, I mentioned a few minutes earlier, and here it is again. Yes, we both feel that strongly about it. Liam Gallagher's vocal delivery takes a song about partying and transforms it into a song about having your very life and existence depend on rock and roll. For a song that was originally a 1970s glam rock song and later a cheesy hair metal song by Quiet Riot, Oasis sludge it up with a grungy groove that reeks, in a good way, of the appropriate attitude and menace that the song deserves. Chris? Yeah, I still think Quiet Riot's version is better. Oh, uh, fuck off. <laughs> no, only, only, be, only because it it, it kind of captures the... It's kind of a schmaltzy song. And uh, Quiet Riot... Really Oasis, didn't. take away take away the schmaltz in this song. Yeah, you know? but but and, and Quiet Riot turns the schmaltz up to 11, which uh, for me works better. I, I just think it's it's fun. We, we had the same debate on the covers uh, song uh, ep- episode a year ago. But, uh, but th- that's all I'll say. Uh, you know, from here, by the way, starting from number 10, I, I think, and I meant to say this a little earlier, that the divide between the top 10 and the rest of the list is pretty stark. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that these top 10s, at this point, we can stop calling them B-sides and start calling them co-A-sides yeah. because they're just classic songs that stand on their own. Now, right. again, the, the Oasis version of Come On, Feel the Noise is truly great. I just, I prefer Quiet Riot's version because because the song itself is just kind of, you know, is kind of schlocky. And yeah, so if you're abs- going to have a schlocky song, you might as well go schlocky to the end. Absolute, absolute blasphemy. Anyway, number eight, <laughs> The Beatles with Baby, You're a Rich Man, the B-side to All You Need is Love from 1967. I bet you all were wondering when The Beatles would make their appearance, eh? Yeah, no, <laughs> this they're is, here. This is, this is perhaps pop music's most famous example of the usage of the claviolene, a forerunner <laughs> to the modern synthesizer. Paul McCartney provided the chorus, but otherwise, this is a John Lennon song through and through. Like the best of Lennon songs, the lyrics are ambiguous and can even be called ambivalent, addressing the then hippie movement of the time, seemingly praising them, but actually slyly accusing them of their exclusivity. Throw in the allusion to celebrity entertainers and their snobbishness, then the chorus makes sense when it makes the point that we're all rich men and women, regardless of how cool or how much money we have. Lovely, inclusive, clever, and acerbic all at once. It's a trick Lennon excelled at. Chris? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it is a neat trick that he kind of gets away with, it, with social commentary in the verses and sing-songy clap-handsiness yeah. uh, in the uh, in the course. Actually, it's well, one that, of the more- that, 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 that was Lennon's shtick. That was his thing. Yeah, you know, yeah was- it was good. But, but here he does it as well as uh, anywhere else in the catalog. And I, I think that the sing-songy quality of this, it's it's, it's about as sing-songiest uh, uh, song on the back half of the Beatles yeah. catalog. Like, right. you know, obviously he got he got more serious and more artsy as he went along. And, mm. you know, you know, this is kind of almost like uh, in the, the beatific spirit of doing a, a cover of Please, Mr. Postman, which, you know, in Lennon's song is the epitome of irony. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. 
All right, number seven, Pearl Jam with Footsteps, one of the two B-sides to Jeremy from 1992. Like I said just now, this is the first of two, this will be the first of two consecutive Pearl Jam songs on this list, both of them B-sides to the Jeremy Maxi single on CD as it was back then. So we thought it was appropriate to order them that way, put them back to back. Haunting, tortured, almost deathly in its pathos. Eddie Vedder howls his pain after what I think is a broken romantic relationship to a yeah. simple accompaniment of just acoustic guitar. It's one of the greatest examples of impassioned, impressionist white boy blues ever recorded. Chris? Oh, I agree with that. And a uh, uh, couple of uh, notes on, on this song. Uh, uh, one, it's, it's uh, been regarded, legend has it, it's a sequel to the song Once. Or it's uh, basically telling the story of the same pr protagonist at, yeah. at, a, at a different point on his journey of self-discovery and and uh, dealing with issues with his mom. Uh, mm -hmm. And so there's that. Uh, also, a, a testament. Here's a, a neat exercise that I encourage everyone to do. So Footsteps, obviously, is, is Eddie Vedder's take on Stone Gossard wrote the music mm -hmm. uh, to Footsteps. But on in 1991, earlier in 1991, the Temple of the Dog. If you remember, Temple yeah. of the Dog was the super group right. that had uh, uh, members Chris, of Pearl yeah, Jam Chris, and Soundgarden. Soundgarden, yeah. yeah, it was Chris Cornell and Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, and then the uh, the guitarists and Eddie Vedder uh, from Pearl Jam. Uh, well, uh, this song had earlier life as a Chris Cornell uh, ditty mm. called "Times yeah. of Trouble," and yeah. so if you if you want to have an exercise, which is also a great song by the way, uh, but it's the exact same piece of music or the exact same uh, uh, riff and uh, structure right. and the same piece of music by St Stone Gossard. But it's a, just kind of an interesting and a neat exercise to hear it in Eddie Vedder's hands and his with his sensibilities, and then in Chris Cornell's uh, hands with his sensibilities. So yeah. I, encur I encourage everybody to do that. Yeah. Number six, like I said, like I alluded to earlier, Pearl Jam, Yellow Ledbetter, Again, the B, one of the B-sides to Jeremy from 1992. It's rare that a B-side is one of a band's greatest and most popular ballads among their devoted following. But that's exactly yeah. what Yellow Ledbetter is. Uh, guitarist Mike McCready is an admitted Jimi Hendrix disciple. And Pearl Jam has never since sounded as Hendrixy as they do here. And a damn good job of approximating the Hendrix vibe as well. Not the heavy rockin' side of Hendrix, mind you, the soulful bluesy side of Hendrix's guitar playing. Contrary to the myriad ways the lyrics have been interpreted, it's actually an anti-war song about losing a loved one to a war and them never coming back. Chris? Yeah, uh, Jeremy, Footsteps, and Yellow Ledbetter. Uh, that's, now, that's one of the greatest maxi singles of all time, ain't it? Maybe the uh, greatest. <laughs> may, maybe the greatest. Uh, yeah. And uh, this is one of those instances where uh, it's a B-side that is still in heavy rotation on, quote-unquote, modern rock stations right. and even seeps into some classic rock stations. It's played all the time. Uh, I, I'll say this, by the way, that I don't think it's uh, – it. yeah, they McCready shows this Hendrix influence, but I think he shows it more pronouncedly on present tense uh, five mm. years later from the album No Code. Uh, I think it shows up uh, even even better there. But, but clearly McCready was an acolyte of Little Wing. And uh, and it's pretty. It's just little, little wing is a very much, very much an inspiration for this song. Oh yeah, and it's and it, it, but but this is just a really pretty, uh, pretty song. And 
Uh, it's also uh, uh, Eddie Vedder is at his most mumbly. Uh, I've never <laughs> quite understood what the hell he's saying. Uh, like you yeah. said, you know, the thank you for the uh, deciphering the lyrics and telling me what it's about because uh, most of the time I hear, yeah. So that's my impression of Vedder singing Yellow Ledbetter. There's not there's not a whole lot of actual like enunciated words going on there. Yeah, I think he was drunk when he recorded it. But anyway, probably. probably. <laughs> Number five, Led Zeppelin with Hey, Hey, What Can I Do? B-side to Immigrant Song from 1970. Nowadays, with plenty of hindsight and legacy building, it's easy to admire and appreciate the depth breadth and versatility of Led Zeppelin's discography. However, in their day, especially the early years, they were derided by critics as lunk-headed practitioners of cock rock. When they emerged toward the end of 1970 with their third album, with its entire second half devoted to acoustic blues and folk excursions, it was a bit shocking to both their fans and critics. This lovely, sweet, soulful B-side came from that album Sessions and to this day stands as one of Zeppelin's most famous, among many, 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 and greatest acoustic songs. Chris? Yeah, I, I think it's like right up there with their best acoustic songs for sure. I think it's also better than uh, half of anything on Led Zeppelin 3. Uh, this also is, uh, it, it found a light of day, by the way, in uh, what I think is the greatest B-Sides collection ever released called Coda uh, yeah. from 1982. Uh, you know, this is post-John Bonham's death. And so they're just kind of emptying out the coffers. Uh, B-Sides there. and outtakes, really. Yeah, yeah B-Sides and outtakes. Uh and really, this could be exhibit A to prove that Robert Plant is one of the best vocalists in rock history and yeah. that he's more than a screamer. There's just an awesome vocal range on display here as far as how he sings the chorus and the, the, the low notes and then getting up to the really, really high notes in, in, yeah. in you know, well, the verse and chorus, uh, the, you know, the, the, the softs, the lows, the highs. Uh, you yeah. know, and, and the, the louds and the softs. It's just it's, it's an amazing vocal performance by Plant. All right, number four, Oasis with Acquiesce, the B-side to Some Might Say from 1995. Like with the previous song by Led Zeppelin, this B-side is considered one of the finest overall songs Oasis ever wrote and recorded, and those who consider that are not wrong. Uh, starting with a guitar riff so immediate and arresting, it sounds like it's existed forever. Uh, Liam Gallagher's verse vocals trade with Noel's chorus vocals and contribute to the most soaring, transcendent sing-along of all sing-along songs. In most other bands' hands, the lyrics may come across as trite and sentimental, but the Gallagher brothers' delivery is so authentic and convincing that it sounds like a sermon from Mount Rockmore. Chris? <laughs> Mount Rockmore. Uh, this is my favorite uh, Oasis song by a mile. Uh, it's and it's a B side. Uh, yeah. it, it might be their best song. Rocks absolute balls. And uh, Noel on the chorus is just iconic with his phrasing. And like you said, the joy and the authenticity uh, right. comes through. And I will say this: he does a better believe than share. Yeah. <laughs> I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Number three, the Beatles with Rain, the B side to Paperback Writer from 1966. The Beatles' first 
true foray into psychedelia is one of their very finest. And in fact, one of the finest single psychedelic rock recordings of all time. With backward tape loops, Ringo Starr's drumming slowed down via tape manipulation, and a sharp crystalline guitar sound that would epitomize most of the Revolver album, the band concocted a sound that changed rock and the overall pop landscape. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. And like, I did definitely one of their first and one of their best experiments with tape manipulation. Uh, from my understanding, at least the drums, if not the whole song, was recorded at a much faster tempo. And then it was, like, yeah. And then you can slowed, find it, you can find it on YouTube. <laughs> and you know, slowed and stretch. I mean, I can imagine when it when it sped up like that, it probably sounds like something from like their 1962 uh, yeah. period. Uh, and, and that's pretty impressive considering that it still counts as an up-tempo ditty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they really went fast, uh, yeah. in the, in the original, uh, so find this by the way, on the deluxe remixed version of revolver, which was a big event back in 2022, uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, Giles Martin and his new, uh, take on, uh, the mixes for revolver. And so this is part of uh, those proceedings. Great, great, great song. Number two. The Beatles, again, with I Am The Walrus, B-side to Hello Goodbye from 1967. One of the darkest, heaviest, most haunting, and downright eeriest songs in the entire Beatles catalog is also one of their catchiest, most melodic, and most earwormy memorable. <laughs> it was yeah. also quite unbelievably re relegated to a B-side. Yeah. John Lennon's seemingly gibberish self-consciously surrealist lyrics took aim at critics who accused the band of having subliminal messages in their songs and it was understandable why producer george martin thought it might not have been suitable as an a-side then again when the a-side was paul mccartney's childish gibberish of hello goodbye <laughs> i am the walrus by comparison sounds uh intellectual and downright esoteric but what makes Walrus special is the soup of music in which yeah. the song is swirling around, akin to being submerged in rainbow-colored water spiked with LSD. As a sonic soundscape of conventional instruments and studio sonic wizardry, it's one of the single greatest songs of the 1960s and of all time. Chris? Oh, absolutely agree. Remarkable, remarkable achievement. Uh, also one of the greatest sets of lyrics ever committed to tape, even if it is surrealist or even if it yeah. even even if it wasn't surrealist, it still is just engaging. It, it, it's the dark, unsettling imagery that it evokes. Yeah, that's, I don't know. That's yeah, picture. absolutely. It's just, you know, one. And like you said, it's just there's one great touch after another uh, as far as the sonic soup and, and just. Uh, it's earwormy as hell. You've got the Mellotron loops. You've got the horn, the, the little horn riff in the background. You've got the alarm clock and stretching string transition, you know, sitting in an English garden. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, you've, you've got the woo on the chorus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and you've got the Joker laughs. Uh, you've got the weird conversational bit at the end. Uh, this might actually be the most efficient four and a half minute song ever recorded. <laughs> because there, there is a remarkable amount of shit going on, uh, yeah. and and packed in, and it's just, it's an absolute just uh, cornucopia. It's a kaleidoscope of a song, and just incredible. Yeah, and finally, number, number one, one, drum roll, the, Be the Beatles again <laughs> with Revolution, the B side to Hey Jude from nineteen sixty eight. 
one of the most snarling rockers in the Beatles catalog, as well as being one of John Lennon's cleverest yet politically ambivalent lyrics, is the curmudgeon rock report's choice for the greatest rock B-side of all time. While being stereotypically known as the rocker in the band, as opposed to Paul McCartney being the balladeer, Lennon's original vision for this song was the slowed down bluesy vamp that ended up on the White Album later that year. According to many Beatle biographers, whose account corroborates, Lennon wanted it to be slow so listeners could focus on the lyrics. Yet, having been earmarked as the B-side to Hey Jude, a big bloated sing-along ballad, both McCartney and George Harrison argued to Lennon that this song needed to be rocked up and rocked out for the sake of contrast. Lennon agreed, and the result was a track that proved the Beatles were capable of being in the same room as heavy rock pioneers at the time, such as Jimi Hendrix, Cream, and The Who. Lennon's exquisite vocal delivery of his pacifist lyrics, Lennon supporting the idea of political revolution, but in no way if violence is involved, added to the song's stunning impact, making it not just one of the defining anthems of 1960s rock, but one of the single greatest recorded moments in rock history. Chris? Absolutely. Uh, so uh, there you go, folks. One of the best rock and roll songs ever created was a B-side. And mm -hmm, yeah. uh, for what it's worth, uh, I think this is the greatest uh, A-side, B-side single in yeah. rock history. I mean, you can't argue with Hey Jude on one side and Revolution on the other. I know. Yeah. I mean, that's just astonishing. Uh, yeah. And uh, most famously, in terms of where to find it, it's most famously included on the Beatles 1967 to 1970 album. Uh, yeah. it, that's the one with the uh, the the blue uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the blue right. uh, cover. Uh, which to me, you know, if I'm being honest, it's the most seminal album for me in my personal history as a rock and roll geek iconoclast. Mm. Uh, and I think that this is the band at its most synergistic. Uh, it's not really a John song. It's not really a Paul song. It's a Beatles song. Mm. And it's top shelf at that. I mean, in, in that way, it kind of shares kinship and with She Loves You and some of the songs from 64 uh, in that way. You can just tell that this, that the band was having a blast playing that song. That yeah, it, it's yeah. it's just a fun, just a rouse, you know, rousing uh, take uh, on the song, and and yeah, Paul and George were right, uh, rev it up, uh, yeah. because I'm not a huge fan of uh, of Revolution One, as it's called on the White Album. I think it's it's a it's a little too corny, doo woppy uh, for my tastes, um, and so yeah, but this is definitely. Uh, remarkable. It belongs at number one, uh, which is kind of funny. When I was listening to Acquiesce uh, this morning before we uh, recorded, I said, that's got to be number one. And then I said to myself, what am I, nuts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it can't be. I mean, the top three is obviously the top three here with uh, yeah. Revolution, I am the walrus and, and Rain. Uh, so the Beatles are the kings forever and uh, ever uh, are the kings of the B-side. And with that said, folks, uh, Please, please, please join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, with, with its uh, businesses picked up up there, uh, Arturo just released his uh, 2001 list of studio albums. 2002 is imminent. And uh, so join us there at Curmudgeon Rock, or excuse me, Facebook.com slash group slash Curmudgeon Rock. 
Uh, also, uh, drop us a line if you think that there's a B-side that we missed or if you disagree with our choices for number one, or hey, even our choice for number 17, uh, reach out to us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we are no longer on Twitter, and we're trying to find a home. Uh, we probably will end up being Blue Sky, uh, but we'll keep you posted on that. And yes, folks, uh, in the link to this uh, to this episode you may have noticed there is a there is a, a hyperlink there. It is to a Spotify playlist that, with, that features 47 of the 50 songs uh, on this list, and so you can enjoy that as an accompaniment as you're listening to and revisiting this episode. 